0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here, and I am so glad to be preaching uh, with you today. I just want to also welcome those who are online. Uh, Thank you for joining. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, and so being here in person online, I know it's a commitment. So thank you so much for showing up. (laughs) Uh, who knows what's going to happen today? I have no idea because I'm watching the ads. So, um, <laughs> uh, so you know, I am, um, I'm so thankful for Nick. I just want to kind of clue you in how this works. Nick actually asked permission to go. Uh, sometimes I think people don't understand how this works, but Nick came and said, hey, there's an opportunity for me to preach. We, you know, Is it okay? And as elders, we said, absolutely. One of the callings on our life as a, as a church, as a body, is to equip other churches, plant other churches. And so we are so excited for Southland Santa Ana, and we believe we need to see more points of light across Orange County. This is something that we celebrate. So I want you to know that because sometimes we can get kind of in Fullerton, that's great, but there's so much happening around us that we get to be a part of. I'm also a bit disappointed because I wanted Karen to do the kids' little storybook, Jonah, because that's been ministering to my soul. I don't know about you, that's been like amazing. I need this Bible. Um, But we're so excited for that. So we're going to dive back into Jonah. If you're taking notes, uh, the message today is titled Rebel City Revival. And all the charismatic people just were like, yes. Uh, We're going to explain what that means in a second. But it's kind of a a subtitle of almost. We're going to pick up in Jonah chapter 3, looking back at verse 4. So we will kind of get back to what what Nick talked about last week. And in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, it starts off with, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days, and none of us shall be overthrown. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. In verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them and he did not do it. Incredible passage. I feel like this is like the climax of the story. But, you know, when I look at this, I grew up in a pretty charismatic church. So I think instantly of revival. I'm like, that is a move of God. If you can't call it anything else, look at that. God shows up, they repent, they turn, and we see this incredible change. Uh, and so I asked my, my life group, which uh, best life, life group in the world, I asked, hey, what do you think of when you think of revival? Like, what kind of comes to mind? Maybe I have a different perspective. And I just kind of heard different things about, you know, I think about fire and brimstone preaching that happens in a tent meeting. I hear uh, about a meeting with flag waving and people kind of rolling around on the ground. And so I think revival can kind of baggage for some people because it comes with so much context of our upbringing and our experience in the church. And so I kind of want to talk about what happened with Nineveh. Did Nineveh experience a revival? And if so, what is this? What is this move of God? And so we're going to talk about three components of a move of God. And we're going to talk about what that means for us as a church. So I want to pray, and we're going to dive in. Father, I thank you that you've invited us into a relationship with you, that we just sing songs about how we fight our battles, because we can celebrate you, we can thank you, because you are with us, and your spirit indwells in us. God, would you help me preach today? I need you. I need you to be, be who you are and to speak the things that you speak out to us, that we may be changed in your presence. Amen. So Jonah arrives in Nineveh, preaches this little short message. We heard about Nick, who we did a great job last Sunday, talking about kind of how he preached this message. It's kind of a, a half job. Um, and so he says, look, 40 days, it's going to be turned over. This count dog, the countdown is starting. And so people, you got to get your act together. And what we see is that Nineveh repents almost instantly. So it kind of raises the question, why did Nineveh repent so quickly? You know, the historians, and I think Nick mentioned this last time, kind of mentioned that before Jonah arrived in Nineveh, there was a sense that there were these events happening in the city that made them more aware and more open to receiving a message of judgment. They had a series of famines and plagues and revolts and eclipses. So Jonah's just like the last in a long line of bad news for them. And they're like, maybe we should listen to the guy who's saying this is going to be over in 40 days. And so they see this as an omen to what Jonah is saying. And Jonah is kind of the last straw for them. And what we see is that sometimes God can use disasters and events that we would deem as terrible, as ways and mercies uh, of grace for people. That sometimes he takes an event that is so terrible to help wake us up to the reality that he wants to do something for us and with us. C.S. Lewis has this great book called The Problem of Pain. And he says it really, really well. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know, I think in our Orange County culture and context, we like to numb pain. We do anything we can do to get away from it. Unless you do CrossFit, then you subscribe to pain. Uh, But in general, our culture is saying, let's get away from pain. Let's get away from the things that make me have an uncomfortable life. Let me numb it. Let me do something else. But what I find, and we see this in the story of Jonah, is that pain actually awakens us to remove of God, that it humbles us to the point where we're open to the point of repentance. In my own life, uh, pain has been a huge component of how I came to know Jesus. I lost my father as a young kid. That pain opened me to the reality that not only was I desperate, but I was also severely broken, that I had sin in my life that I need him to repair. And through the pain of that moment, God opened a door for me to radically change my life. And I realized actually, even 2020, that the the idea of pain also awakens me to the reality that I can live my life not in alignment to what God has for me. Um, I remember in talking to Gab, and Gab was like, I like vacation, Chris. And I realized what that meant. That meant there's another version of you that I don't really like that's not very nice to me. And I realized in 2020 that when it was removing all the chaos and things, I had to repent. I had to say, I'm putting things above you. I'm making my life in such a way. I'm designing my life in such a way that is actually not honoring you, loving you, helping you be the best that you can be and for me to be the best. The pain awakens us to the point of repentance. And that's what we're seeing in Nineveh. They're primed and ready to go. Jonah walks in and they respond instantly. They repent. Right now, we're in one of those moments as a nation. We have a lot of pain happening. I think sometimes we pray for it to end quickly, and I want that to happen. But I also want God to awaken people in this moment. I want the real reality, the the brokenness inside to be highlighted and brought up so repentance can happen. So Sean preached uh, a couple of weeks ago that repentance is this idea of returning to God, that we go back to him. So then what is the idea of how they repented? What did they actually do here? So let's break it down step by step, kind of a view of how Nineveh decides to repent. First, they believe. Um, It says that in this book that they believed God. They took the prophetic word actually seriously, that this guy is not bluffing, that we should probably believe him, that the God he serves will do what he says he's going to do. There's something so novel about that. something so incredible about just believing God is who he says he is. That is remarkable with Nineveh, right? They respond and they believe God. You know, faith is, and belief is the currency of repentance. Why would you repent unless you believe that God is who he says he is and that you could actually return to him, that he would actually do something with you and for you? Without faith, repentance is impossible. And so this belief in God is the first step for them. But second, they humble themselves. They put on this sackcloth and they fast. So what is going on with the whole ashes and sackcloth and the new fashion style of Nineveh? Well, what this, this is common in that time where when you mourned, you would strip away the, the nice clothing. You would demonstrate this outward appearance of an inward thing that's happening. So I would put on ash, I would put on the sackcloth, and I would mourn and fast. I would push away the food so that I could focus my energy and intention on crying out to God. And what we see is that the king himself begins to kind of enact with this. Now, one little note in this verse is that it's probably not chronological. It wasn't the people, then the king most likely went in the other way. But the point is the author is showing that they're responding to Jonah's message, not just the king's decree, that they themselves recognize as the people there's something desperately wrong with us. And so we read in Jonah 3, 6 8, it says, when the word received the king, reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. You got to note that this is a demonstration of leadership saying, We're, something's wrong here. I need to model something of repentance and it's remarkable for this king and this ruler of the city to do that but let's not get stuck with just the fashion statement let's think about what's happening what they're trying to do they're focusing their attention so that they could pray so the last step that they do as they believe and humble is that they pray so they cry out and the word here is kind of idea of with force and with passion with energy they cry out with emotion it's not like this kind of yes god please save us but almost a desperation In their prayer. And the key here is that corporate prayer is the way that they go about this. That there's a sense that the entire city stops what they're doing and prays and asks for God to move. And He's not calling just people to believe the word, but also to respond by crying out for His mercy. When we reach the end of ourselves as a people, we tend to have only prayer left. You talk about people in foxholes, they become people who pray. When we reach the end of ourselves, prayer tends to be the default. Now, we may pray to something that we doesn't have power. We may pray to an idol. We may pray to some sort of person or thing. But what we see here is our prays to God. And what is a key thing here is that we see repeated in Jonah that these pagans keep praying. It's the sailors who don't know who God is. They pray when the storm is happening. We see Jonah finally gets kind of his act together and prays, but he's at the bottom of the ocean. He has to kind of be awoken in the pain of a fish to pray. And now we see a city awaken to their own situation that they pray. And they know that the prayer of a multitude can change the destiny of a city. What about today? What about us? I think that one of the most underrated activities in the church today is prayer. Some of us find it's boring and it's antiquated and does it really do anything. But prayer is the keystone discipline for all other spiritual disciplines. Worship that we just did is actually an act of prayer, fasting and taking time away from social media so we could go and pray. Prayer is required to do anything else in terms of spiritual disciplines. But it's also one of the markers of revival, of a move of God. We see throughout history, prayer is always preceding a massive move of what God does in our nation and in the world. And I've seen firsthand personally, when we pray, people will get healed and get free they find that their life is radically changed. I've seen the power of prayer daily, but it's also, I understand how hard it can be because sometimes we feel like we're lobbing language into the sky and I'm not seeing it happen. So there's this book that shaped my view of revival and and prayer called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Um, And he writes this little sentence that kind of stands out. He says, I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. What he means is that he's saying, the spirit of thought that I could do all this stuff, the church activities, and not see God move. He actually, in after this little passage, he kind of reorients his church, says, prayer is going to be the engine room of our church. And he wrote it later, he says, I hated the thought of just having more church services. Nick was kind of probably heard that in Santa Ana. I said the word service. And I hungered for God to break through in our lives and ministries. Because the question is kind of, what is the point? Right, why be in the room? Why gather unless you thought God could do something? Why even sing the song of this is how I fought my battles unless you thought he would fight for you? John Mark Comer says it in his book, uh, God Has a Name. He talks about prayer and I love how he just breaks it down so simple. Prayer can move the hand of God. Prayer can get God to change his mind. Think about the gravity of that. Prayer is when your life trajectory is going in the wrong direction. So you dialogue with God and he responds and your life goes another way. The thing that was going to happen, Nineveh, but now is not. The thing that was not going to happen, but now it is. Because I just had a conversation with God. That simple. He later quotes Sky Tathani's words. He says, very simple, if you want to kind of bring it onto to one coffee cup quote, is in prayer, we're invited to join God and directing the course of his world. That is immense power. That is immense idea that you get to participate with him in changing his world. And what's remarkable is that the pagan king and the pagan sailors believe that if they pray to God, that he would do something. Jonah knows God would do something and doesn't pray. He just kind of just runs away. But the idea is that these people pray. The book is trying to invite us and kind of bait us in saying, look, Israel, as you read this, the kind of undercurrent is that you're not really doing this, that this nation that you hate so much is the one praying and God is changing their city. I wonder how our lives would look if we had this kind of faith. I wonder what would change in our priorities if we believe that if I ask God for something and because he loves me and he's called me by his purposes, that he would change the destiny of cities. I wonder if Wednesday night would be different for us, that we would prioritize coming to community prayer. Got real quiet, real fast. (laughs) But here's the thing, it's not to shame you, it's to invite you, that I have received prophetic words, I have received moments from God, not on a Sunday morning, but in a prayer meeting with the body gathered together, crying out mightily that he would do something. I am standing at this podium today because of a word I received at a prayer meeting during a fast, saying, do you think you're going to just go do this way? God has called you to speak and to preach and to lead. And I said, I don't speak. I have a speech impediment. I'm not going to do that. And God would move by simply by people praying. Prayer changes everything. So they repent, right? We see this step, this kind of first piece in the move of God is they repent. And very specifically, they humble themselves and they receive this idea of, let me pray and ask him, maybe God will do something. But we see the shift from repentance to reform. The king's decree has this line kind of tucked inside of it that kind of shocked me when I read it. And I had never seen this before, but it's an admission of guilt. He writes in verse eight, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Here's the point I want you to see. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? Maybe God will relent and turn from his fierce anger. So let's break this down a bit. Why is Nineveh in this mess in the first place? They've been a violent people. They've been known for that. That's their brand. They're just like, we are like the Raiders. We just attack everyone. <laughs> Sorry, any Raiders fans. We, their brand is that they just destroy. They've become a superpower because of it. They're not some tiny town on the backside of a desert. They are a metropolis in the middle of a, a network of cities in the most powerful empire that there is. This is the Death Star, okay? And their very success, the very thing that got them to this place was violence. And now this king all of a sudden says that the currency of their life, the model of the way that they acted, the very reason they exist is now bankrupt. That now this thing that was their, their modus operandi doesn't work anymore. And not only that, but it's broken and it's evil. He names it as an evil way. He says that this is not right. This is radical. Like, this is crazy that this guy would do this. It's clear based on the historical record that this king is not just addressing the violence outside the walls of the city, but he's also talking about what's happening within it. There's a funny thing that happens is that when you're violent externally, it tends to kick back internally. That when I start attacking my enemy and start being really, really violent, that it tends to seep into the culture of our people. And see, so we see a call from an individual response to, to, of repentance to humility that leads to a corporate change, a collective action. He shifts them from repenting to reform, that they would change the very fabric of what they do. So if repentance is turning to God, what is reform? So the quote of reform and what the definition is, is to make changes in some typically social, political, economic, Uh, in order to improve it. So this idea that I'm going to change the way we operate as a society for the better. And so if repentance is turning back to God and his intention for us, reform is moving with God in alignment to his pattern for life and human flourishing. There's this idea that the king is recognizing what we're doing is not good for humanity, not good for us. We need to change. The point is that the king is saying that the law that they created the law of the land was wrong. This month is uh, Black History Month, if you haven't noticed. Um, and in the wake of this past summer's events, we're seeing a lot more attention here about our past and our history. And to be honest, I get a little bit frustrated with the idea of that we just kind of quote MLK, but don't really understand what he was saying. Um, I get frustrated when there's like, yes, we want this idea, this unity, but we don't want the underlying truth of what he was actually saying. Keller captures this perfectly, because it's Keller. (laughs) He says, Here there is no separation between the working for justice in a society and declaring the displeasure of a just God. In his great I have a dream speech, Dr. King did not appeal to the modern secular individualism. Sound familiar of our world? He did not say all should be free to define their own meaning, in life and moral truth. Rather, he quoted scripture and called his society to let God's justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. He's not saying, and what he's not saying, yes, whatever you define as a moral, absolute truth for yourself is what we'll just go with. He's saying, no, there is a law that is perpetuating something that is wrong. There is an absolute truth that stands for human flourishing. This isn't it. We want something different. We want to reform. And let's be perfectly clear, unless we haven't been so already, the history of this nation has a a law that was created that made people like me less valuable. We cannot avoid that fact, that truth. That is part of the fabric of our story of history. And that the law that this nation tried to justify, they confused it as human flourishing, when we know now in hindsight that that was not human flourishing. The law was wrong it's because of the prayers of my grandmother and my mother of MK and the church leaders that go before me that I'm allowed to stand and preach to you today in this building. Do you understand the weight of that? So when we show up on a Wednesday, we're not just lobbying language. We're saying, God, I believe you can move, not just in repentance of my heart, but you can change a city. You can reform the the world around me. You can make the laws that are evil and change them for good. You can do that. That is what happens when we pray. It changes how we live. Prayer moves God. Reform happened because the people prayed in Nineveh, and God spared a city. We cannot miss that fact in this text. So I love preaching this message. This one's my favorite. So is it happily ever after for Nineveh? Is this really what happened? Is this a revival? Well, let's talk about Nineveh because there's something missing here. For all of this that happens, there's this kind of feeling of something's not quite right. They repented, yes. They reformed, absolutely. They changed how they lived with this, but there's something missing, something missing in the middle of this. So the missing middle. We know that God relents from his judgment of Nineveh, but he shows his mercy, but the moment that this happens doesn't last. We know what happens in Nineveh. Turn your Bible two books later, and you'll read what happens to Nineveh, and at least how God feels about them. So let's hear what happened to the people who have turned from their evil ways from their violence that's in their hands. Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. So that lasted so long, Nineveh. No end to the prey. Goes on, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. It gets better, it gets better. I will throw filth at you and treat contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? God is not happy with Nineveh. What happened between the reform and the repentance What happened? Because clearly they were rescued and now God is very, very upset. A clear reason for this and why it didn't stick is how they relate to God, right? They pray this prayer and they make this decree in verse 8 in Jonah. It says, let us cry out madly to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. The word for God here is Elohim. It's actually not the word that we use in the rest of the text. God is referred to as Yahweh by Jonah because he has relationship with God. He knows this is a sacred word of covenant. Nineveh just knows God as the other God over there. Most likely one of many other gods. If we just appease this one, we will get to save our livelihoods. So there is no covenant. There's no relationship. There's no connection with Nineveh to God. And the text of Jonah is trying to elevate to Israel who's reading this, that there is a foil here. There is a comparison. To Israel. So let's just compare this real quickly. Israel has been slow to repent. Read the Bible at this point, very slow to repent. Nineveh, instantly. Israel abandons God and does not cry out, does not pray. A whole pagan city shuts down, almost like a lockdown. and says, let's pray and maybe God will move. The pagan king and the sailors actually care about saving lives, while Jonah could not care less. And kind of, therefore, Israel does not care about this nation at all. Nineveh may have repented, they may have reformed, but they didn't have what Israel had, which is out of relationship with God. They were not revived. Keller, I'm going to quote him again because his book is just amazing. He writes, we must not be too quick to liking Nineveh's turning to revivals. I read that and I was like, shoot, my entire thing was about revival. How does that change? Let's talk about it. While it says they believe God, there's no indication that the Ninevites came into covenant relationship with God of Israel. Remember, there is a way to relate to God. It's not on just anyone's terms. There's a relationship that has to happen. And Nineveh was in the middle of a move of God. We're seeing massive change happen. But what's missing is the very element that fuels reform, the very element that transforms cities in a lasting way and makes human flourishing possible. Covenant relationship with God is what brings the dead to life. I love that Enid actually, I asked her, I said, what is revival? She says, it's really, it's the bringing back to life of people. I was like, that is the best answer Bonus points to you, Gryffindor. It powers lasting reform. In the middle of repentance and reform, what was missing for them is they skipped a step, which is revival. Relationship that fuels a bringing back to life. So what's the takeaway of this little section? Without covenant relationship with God, there is no revival. Without revival, there is no lasting reform. Clear as day. So, how do we kind of step into the middle part of a move of God? My worry for some of us, Mercy Commons, is that we confuse reform for revival. That we put our hope in society changing and things getting better. And when they get worse, we question if God is moving. We question if he's real, if he's actually doing anything. We point to and we say, look, I want to sign God. I want some sort of like banner to say that you're actually doing something right now. And I get it. I get when pain does that. You want to see some example of God doing something. And so we come to Jesus in Matthew 12. We fast forward a few hundred years and the Pharisees are asking Jesus for a sign. And they say, teacher, and this is Matthew 12, verse 38, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here we go. Here's Nineveh again. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The biggest understatement in the world, yes, something is definitely greater than Jonah. Jonah is not that great of a bar, right? Jesus is... So... The Pharisees are saying, show us a sign. We don't believe you're who you say you are. Nineveh did. Nineveh believed God is who he said he was. But they're saying, we don't believe that you're who you say you are. And it sounds harsh that Jesus is not just going to show them a sign, right? Just do it, Jesus. Let's get on to the rest of the ministry. And instead, he talks about them in this way because he knows that they don't have repentance. They want reform. They want Rome to disappear. But they don't want revival. They don't want to change. They don't want the king and the reign of a king. And the Pharisees are like the ruler of Nineveh. They're missing what really matters. They're missing that Yahweh, the God that Nineveh never knew, but still prayed to, was standing right in front of them. They're missing that the same God that spared an evil city would ultimately uh, send mercy to an evil world. They're missing that the greater Jonah, who was sent from heaven and willingly lay down his life. Jonah did not willingly do a thing. <laughs> as as an ultimate sign to a generation that did not know him. They're missing that his death and resurrection would lead to billions, would lead billions to repentance and that he would revive them and that the result would be reformation. And the Pharisees are in the middle of a move of God and they don't even know it. Irony, right? This whole time is ironic. Here's the good news for us. You have access. You get to know this God that Nineveh never could know. You get to, commune with him, ask him for things. And Nineveh can only know God at a distance. And so the reform never lasted. The difference for us is we have the living, the living God, the spirit of God in us that empowers what we do to be lasting, to change cities. So things may be getting worse around you. Famine and revolt may happen, which kind of felt like that happened this year. But right now you're in the middle of a move of God. The question is, do you know it? So as we kind of land in this part, because I want to give us room to respond. How do you change a city? How does a Nineveh happen today? Israel's covenant with God was to be in relationship with him. And through that covenant, he would bless the nations. Remember this whole idea is that the fall happens. Humanity is subjected to sin. God's solution is to send a people and ultimately out of that people send Jesus to redeem and restore us. And we see this pattern in church history of repentance, revival, reform. So at the inception of the church in Acts, we see the spirit of God falls on the church on Pentecost. And Peter preaches a message and says this in Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Very similar to Jonah's 40 days and it's over. This feeling of, oh crap, we did something wrong. We just think really, really bad. We need something. So the response then is in Acts 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Yes, <laughs> that's the great response. You killed the Messiah. You should probably feel bad about that. And said, Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What can we do? And Peter said to them, just figure it out. Go for a walk. Figure out your own moral truth. No, he says, repent and be baptized. Repent. And almost like putting on ashes, die to yourself. Strip away the other stuff and come back alive. And every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And that day, 3,000 people are added. Not just because they showed up in a building, but they're changed. Revival, repentance, revival. What happens after that? Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Catch this part. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Reform. They had this identity change and shift. They repent. They feel the feeling of. They were revived and brought new. And the response is that they share with one another in a city that was quite selfish and holding back. In the same city where the temple, where they were exchanging money and taking away from people, they were saying, why don't we just be generous? Why don't we just give? It's a radical shift instantly. So as the band comes up, it's a subtle way I can say we're going to transition. It happens... Over and over and over again. I just want to remind you, what you where you are in the story. You're part of the church, the bride of Christ, the solution God has for the world. And over and over again, we see that the church shows up. They're filled with the spirit of God. They preach the message of God and people repent. And they believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he can do. And they're revived and filled with the spirit. It multiplies. The result of that revival is reform, repentance, revival, reform. It's the very fabric of our nature to do that, that you have been called to live this life of repenting and being filled with the spirit and reforming the city around you. Mercy Commons, our call today is to revel in the mercies of God, to know him deeply. That's where it begins. Nineveh could never have it, but yet we have access to the living God where we can't imagine life without him. And when we have that encounter with God, we can't help but proclaim it to people, to say that this message is the message of life and the people around us are revived. And then we begin to demonstrate the mercies of God in how we live. We reform the way we live here first. And then we participate in acts of mercies in the city we're in and in the nations. We send people like Nick to preach and proclaim. We support people in India and what's happening there, we, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus today. That you have been called, Mercy Commons, to change cities. Nineveh had an almost revival. We're called to have revival in our city where people come to know this God that we serve, that when we sing these songs, this is not just a lobbing of language, but we believe he will move in our behalf. It's not because you're special. <laughs> it's not because you're better than Jonah. I hope the text, as you see, is that we're just like Jonah. But you've been given what the Pharisees could not see. You've been given what the Ninevites just longed to have, the free gift of grace that revives cities. Jesus, we thank you that this is a truth for us. That you desire for us to know what it means to repent. And that, like Nineveh, we we acknowledge that we fall short But Jesus, your blood is enough. Your sacrifice is enough. And it wasn't just that you would leave us there, but you would revive us. And you would call us on mission to reform our city. You would change a nation that had a racist past to move forward to a time when we have a new sense of unity and a new sense of growing with you. God, I thank you that because of the prayers of people before me, I can do this today. And that you're calling us to greater. You're calling us to more. And we believe that you are a God that revives the cities. Would you help us to be part of that? Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.